MSW Media. This week, Trump associate Roger Stone was indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller for lying to the House Intelligence Committee about his contacts with WikiLeaks and for trying to intimidate Roger Credico to keep him from testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. That indictment indicates that senior Trump campaign officials were involved in Roger Stone's efforts to reach out and coordinate with WikiLeaks as they released hacked emails. What does this mean for the Trump presidency? How will House Democrats continue the investigation that was the basis for this indictment? And what does this mean for the Mueller investigation? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, uh, I the this podcast is rarely this on top of breaking news. Uh, literally, we, we I read this indictment when I woke up this morning. Uh, I've been doing nothing but analyze it and talk about it ever since. We've got a lot to talk about today. You must feel so much better than last week after we did one podcast and the news changed. I mean, this feels good. There you go. Yes. We got news that is not going to change. This indictment is not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. And we have um, two guests with, I think, two different unique perspectives on it. Our first guest today, Mike Quigley, is a member of the House Intelligence Committee, the House Select Committee on Intelligence, that conducted the investigation that Roger Stone was trying to obstruct and lied lied to and so forth. He's one of the people who questioned Roger Stone. Right. Uh, and then we also are going to have uh, Barb McQuaid, she is the former United States attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan, MSNBC legal analyst, and we'll break down all of the legal specifics. Um, but a lot of, I mean, a lot of questions, a lot of input uh, from, from listeners. And a lot of excitement, lot. of course, you know, I mean, there are folks who are really, this, you know, I woke up to a bunch of uh, texts from friends of mine. are like, what is happening? What does this all mean? Go ask Renato for me. I <laughs> think I have a direct line to you. Which I, I, mean, I woke too, up but. this morning uh, expecting to go to the gym to meet my personal trainer. <laughs> and when I my phone was blowing up. Uh, and so I got to spend my morning instead reading that indictment more than once. I, I asked, what, what are people's questions? The initial questions in everyone's mind is, you know, what does this mean for Trump? What kind of punishment is uh, is uh, Stone looking at? We'll answer some of those questions today. Um, but. Um, we're going to try to get into the weeds and answer some of the more specific questions Great. about what this means for the House Intelligence Committee investigation, what that investigation is going to look like going forward, because uh, the Democrats were stymied in a lot of their attempts to do that yes, uh, by Devin Nunez, the chairman of that committee, and by some of his uh, surrogates who were, even after he supposedly recused himself, were engaging in various shenanigans. Uh, and then we're we're going to talk with Barb and really break down all of the legal issues. So let's bring in Congressman Mike Quigley. Uh, Mike is a, a congressman here in 
uh, Illinois. He is uh, a, a member of the House Intel Committee. And so, Mike, uh, thank, first of all, thank you for joining us. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for agreeing to uh, be part of the uh, podcast today. Glad to be here. Uh, interesting times, interesting day. <laughs> Just a bit. Indeed. So I, I will tell you. Uh, I feel I, like uh, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Move along. It's, <laughs> it's sort of the Trump reaction to this uh, juxtaposition with just extraordinary news almost on a daily basis. Indeed. I will say I, it's hard to keep up with. And when I saw um, that indictment this morning, I changed my my plans this morning. Uh, and I got to ask you, would it, you're a member of the House Intel Committee. You were a member when when Stone was doing all of this. How do you how did you react to to seeing what Stone had done? Well, uh, I, along with uh, Chairman Schiff and Mr. Swalwell, were the lead questioners of Mr. Stone. Uh, my reaction back then was. Uh, from a non-serious point of view to serious, but when they do a movie on this <laughs> horrible escapade in American history, only Roger Stone could play Roger Stone. By the way, I love, that could be worked out. I love that you think it would be just one movie. I mean, this seems like it's going to be many movies and miniseries. <laughs> There's going to be all kinds of sequels. <laughs> Instead of the Americans, it'll be called the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm also reminded, uh, when I was there too, uh, members of the committee were saying, how did these people find each other in Trump world? Uh, someone called it the island of misfit toys. And finally, I, I thought of Hunter Thompson, the Gonzo Journal, saying that uh, when, the, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. So in questioning him, uh, it wasn't a surprise and, and certainly not an anomaly that I, I thought he was extraordinarily evasive. But you also, the problem with just reading the transcript, as you know, not being in the courtroom or in the meeting when we're questioning him, is you, know, you miss so much of the tone, the inflection, the mannerisms. You know, so many of our signals are nonverbal. And I didn't believe him. And it wasn't hard to add him to the list of those I thought should come back because they were less than honest. So the special counsel has been very um, uh, tight-shipped, and so it's always a surprise when the uh, indictments are announced. Um, so I wasn't surprised that Mr. Stone was indicted, because when the interview was over, I felt I had given him every opportunity to perjure himself. And uh, he, 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 at least according to the allegations, seems to uh, have obliged. Um, but so... I guess I wasn't surprised at the indictment. There's always things in the indictment that the special counsel drops that's uh, pretty earth-shaking, you know. And as you say, on a weekly basis, this one clearly the, the bombshell is that uh, the allegation that he was directed by a senior campaign official. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like so. I will say, as a prosecutor reading that indictment. Uh, you know, there is definitely the use of the passive voice there where that senior campaign official was was directed to get in touch with Roger Stone about this. And the question is, by whom? Right. Was it Trump himself who, you know, is obviously very close to Roger Stone or was it, you know, a Trump family member or someone else? Uh, Mueller deliberately was silent as to that. Mm -hmm.
Um, but I will I will say there's to me there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. You know, I wonder too from your perspective, Mike. Um, you're you're seeing um, you you know you were seeing also other witnesses that you had subpoenaed, some of whom didn't want to testify or were reluctant to testify. Randy Credico appears to be individual two or the the second person uh, that is mentioned here. Uh, and it looks like Stone was threatening his him, you know, him personally threatening his little dog, his comfort dog and so forth. Uh, it uh, some of that behavior was astounding. Did you find out about that for the first time in reading the indictment or were you aware of some of that earlier? Uh, that part was news to me. Uh, so uh, we, we read these things because we learn uh, also the special counsel, uh, I think, is getting clues to where he's going occasionally. Uh, I think he's sending messages. Uh, so in that regard, there's no surprises. I think uh, that he's sending is if you lie to Congress, you're, you're in trouble. And this is now the second time that uh, one of those who have testified in front of Congress has either pled guilty or been charged um, with lying to us. So, I think that sends a serious, you know, a very serious message. You don't lie to the FBI. You don't lie to Congress. And my colleagues on the other side of the aisle obviously should be just as concerned because when you lie to Congress, you're lying to the American people. You know, Congressman Quigley, now the, the House Democrats are in the majority. Uh, and at the time that all of this was happening, you were not. And there was a lot of... Um, uh, reporting that was done about what Chairman Nunez was doing. He claimed to have recused himself, but he appeared to not fully recuse himself. There were some shenanigans that he was engaging in. Uh, and there there appeared to be an effort, um, whether it was by him or by the other Republicans in the committee, to very swiftly bring that investigation to a close uh, before the midterm elections. What, what was your uh, impression of those of the of those actions? You know, I think my impression could be viewed by the American public uh, for the most part. First of all, uh, they tanked the investigation, beginning uh, with Chairman Nunez's midnight ride to the White House, uh, writing a memo that did nothing more than to act like co-counsel with the president's attorneys. Uh, And instead of all the time this was taking place, It was clear, and DNI Coates says it's still happening. Uh, The Russians haven't gone away. They're still attacking the democratic process. And Chairman Nunez, in concert, hand in glove with the White House, uh, response was to attack the Justice Department, uh, the FBI, and the entire intelligence community. Uh, Extraordinary uh, acts. And uh, I don't think the chairman ever faded away from this. I think he was uh, he he didn't come to a lot of the interviews uh, after a certain period of time, but clearly had his surrogates there. And when these transcripts finally come out, the American public will see firsthand how uh, little involved on one point they were in questioning beyond superficial. Did you collude? Oh, okay. then thank you for being here. Um, and, and second, obviously, they shut the investigation down, wrote a memo, which is now tragic farce, saying that uh, there's nothing to see here, when all the while 
uh, with the scores now of indictments, um, we see there's just so much more to do. Congressman Quigley, uh, for, uh, our listeners, a lot of them don't know you. They, some of them are in other parts of Illinois or throughout the country. You're you, my congressman, and so I'm familiar with you, and I know you were a criminal defense attorney for a number of years. You're an experienced questioner. Um, can, can you help explain to the listeners why having those specific questions asked and answered by the witnesses is more, is, is more important than just asking the general questions? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I, I think that we ran into a, a compound problem here. Uh, when witnesses aren't cooperating and when they're not compelled to answer questions, uh, when we are not, as, a, as the Democrats on the committee, allowed to uh, fully subpoena beforehand um, and get the documents we need, we were flying blind. So uh, I, I equated a couple things. It would be like you doing a criminal case without discovery or uh, uh, going into a civil trial when you haven't had interrogatories or, or any documents before you. So it, here we are trying to solve and address the most complicated investigation of our lifetime, a calculus to Watergate's algebra. All the while, uh, compare it to a thousand-piece uh, picture puzzle. The pieces are turned upside down. You only have half of them, um, and you have puzzles from other pieces from other puzzles in there. So it's not easy. Um, and when people don't have to answer the questions, and that happened to me uh, a, a number of times because they're not under subpoena, uh, you're extraordinarily limited. So uh, that's why, given that we are now in the majority, we look forward to uh, robust opportunities to uh, release the transcripts, to, especially to the special counsel, uh, call witnesses back, and get the documents we need so that we can do this the right way. I have uh, some questions from uh, some, of the, uh, some of our listeners. And uh, we were talking about Devin Nunes and, uh, and his handling of the investigation and information. And you mentioned as well that lying to Congress will land you in hot water. Uh, one of our listeners was wondering if, uh, if a member of Congress can be indicted for lying to Congress or for obstruction, and in particular, they're wondering about Devin Nunes. Yeah, it's obviously much more complicated and nuanced, uh, given the circumstances. Uh, there, the members of Congress have a lot of leeway in their, what they can say on the House floor and uh, committee rooms and so forth. So uh, and he obviously wasn't called to testify. So it's a complicated, tricky wicket. Uh, I, I think in the end, um, Chairman Nunez, now or ranking member Nunez, will be called into question in the court of history, uh, okay. having thwarted, having thwarted, uh, and, and been irreparable damage to this investigation, which which I think is far more important than Watergate, and um, more importantly, extraordinarily long-lasting damage to the integrities, to the integrity and the ability of the Department of Justice and the intelligence community. Uh, I think that's what he'll be called uh, on as time goes on. And I don't know what else will happen. Uh, it's hard for me to say as a fellow member of Congress, but I, I'm certainly uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, uh, the damage has been done. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say for the 
for the benefit of the listeners, is you, Congressman Quigley's right on target in terms of the complexity there. There's something called the Speech and Debate Clause of the Constitution, which um, get, uh, essentially it makes it very challenging for uh, prosecutors to bring any uh, actions against uh, members of Congress that are speaking as part of their official duties. In other words, uh, you know, this famously came up when the Pentagon Papers were read on the floor of the United States Congress. Uh, and, uh, you know, you couldn't, you know, the, 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 the members could not be charged for making, you know, for disclosing classified information because they were uh, engaging in speech and debate on the floor of the United States Congress. Uh, and certainly uh, it's much more complicated when you have uh, somebody who's a member of Congress engaging in political um, shenanigans versus uh, somebody who's and a you want it, you want this to be done the right way too because of the potential for retaliatory means of uh, someone not liking what the other side is saying and you know bringing them up so uh, the, look I, I think that the, the chairman did some things that were uh, wrong uh, how he'll be called account we'll we'll, we'll see uh, I think more important right now is for us to uh, uh, complete the investigation. Number one, protect the Mueller investigation at cost. But remember that the Mueller investigation has quite different purposes than we do. His job, as yours was, as a prosecutor, was to uh, decide who is brought to justice. Uh, our job is to find out what exactly did the Russians do, how to prevent it in the future, and uh, I think of greatest interest to the American public now, um, who helped them? I, I will say, you know, this is something that's lost on a lot of folks. The reason why we have the House conducting investigations and the Senate is because much of the material that Mueller gathers cannot be disclosed to the public because it's obtained through grand jury subpoenas and other means that are secret. Uh, some of it will be classified, et cetera. It's, you know, as our elected representatives, it is up to people like you, Congressman Quigley, to be conducting that investigation so that the American people and their elective representatives can be informed. And here I will say your investigation made a difference because none of the charges uh, against Stone today could have been made or brought by Mueller if there was not a House investigation. In many ways, it was acting in the back, you know, in, you know, Mueller was acting in the backdrop of, of the investigation that you were conducting. And so I wonder, You're right. It, mm -hmm. It's critical that, that part of what we do is to inform the American public. And I also recognize, beyond your point, that um, by the fact that we were informing the American public all along, it made it much more difficult for uh, my colleagues across the aisle or the president of the United States to halt the Mueller investigation. It was bad enough they shut down the House temporarily. But, uh, you know, I, I do want to provide some encouragement. This may take a little while, but with subpoena power and the potential for some cooperation with the special counsel, we will get to the bottom of this and inform and educate the American public. I think it's a relief to a lot of people. That's what they need to hear. Well, uh, yeah, a lot of folks wondered if their votes mattered. I mean, this is the difference is that Congressman Quigley and Adam, Sch you know, will and Adam Schiff and others will be in the majority and have that subpoena power versus Devin Nunez and, and, the, and the folks who 
already declared a lot of people forget they are the 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 republicans in your committee already you know issued a report saying they had determined there was no collusion uh based on very limited evidence and they voted to uh prohibit us from turning all the transcripts over to the special counsel and how in the world do you justify that (laughs) right if you're worried about classified materials this is going to the special counsel if all we're trying to do is find out what happened and allow him to continue, there's just no excuse for that. So, you know, profiles and courage were lacking. Uh, I thought this, uh, the former Speaker of the House, uh, I, I think this is ultimately uh, his legacy, is that he didn't stand up and put a bill on the floor to protect the Mueller investigation. And he didn't stand up and tell one of his chairmen, you do this right or you're not doing this at all, uh, especially when the Justice Department and others were saying about the memo that was released, that it was dangerous, that it was reckless to release this information as protecting sources and methods. The keeping the American public safe was put at risk. Uh, at that point in time, uh, the Speaker of the House and others should have stepped up and differentiated themselves. This is a, as good a classic example of how uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The, the fact that they control the House, the Senate, and the White House isn't just they can pass legislation without much opposition, um, or they can prohibit important bills from getting on the House floor. They, they can impair justice, and that's exactly what's happened. Congressman Quigley, uh, I'm curious, in addition, you know, one another witness who was not cooperative with your committee was Steve Bannon. He came in. My understanding is he was only according to CNN, he only answered 25 questions that were pre-approved by the White House. I think uh, Chairman and now Chairman Schiff had said that publicly. What, what, what was your take on Steve Bannon and, and his refusal to answer questions before the committee? Hey, you mentioned earlier that I was a criminal defense attorney. Uh, Ten years in my dreams, I should have co- I could have uh, showed up in court and said to the judge, "Eh, I want my uh, defendant to testify, but he's only going to answer these questions, and we're pre-approving his answers." Right? Um, it, that just shows you the, the stark comparison of that, how uh, inappropriate this investigation was. And the fact that they were allowed to institute a gag order, they were not exerting a privilege officially. They never did officially because the breadth, the width of the privilege that they would have been talking about would have been uh, extraordinary and I think damaging to uh, uh, the role of Congress and all of these investigations in the future. One of our listeners actually wanted to know uh, if if the uh, the shutdown will have an impact, a negative impact on the investigation, considering so many people involved in working on this are federal employees not getting paychecks. You know, it's a great question. I don't know exactly what, if anything, has happened there. I would assume that uh, uh, the special counsel would inform us if there's an issue like this. And if he has, I'm just not aware of it yet. Uh, I'm a a chairman of one of the subcommittees of appropriations. And uh, as you know, we have our hands full as it is. So uh, it's a very fair question. Uh, we seek to get the answer. 
One question that we we receive from many listeners, uh, Congressman Quigley, is uh, w- w- essentially how quickly will your committee and others begin conducting some of these investigations? Uh, I understand that in, you have so many problems to solve. We have the government shutdown and a number of other things, but but a lot of folks out there want to want action very quickly. What would you say to them? Um. The committee, I believe, will start business again next week. As you know, with every new cons- uh, every new Congress, we have to reconstitute ourselves. Uh, we have to name the members of the committee. After, you know, it's a select committee. So the speaker names the Democrats. The, the party leader names his members, and they have to be read on this process. The names have to be read on the floor. And I believe that we're at a point where all that's been done and we can begin the official work again, uh, hopefully next week. Are there? Uh, we talked about Steve Bannon a moment ago. Are there other witnesses that you either tried to uh, subpoena the first time around, or were brought in and they weren't uh, very forthcoming that you that you personally are interested in hearing from again? I think everyone has the same answer. They'd like to have Mr. Cohen come back, and obviously that's run into uh, issues on. Uh, I'd like to think we could overcome. Um, I think the, the president's son is another one. Um, and our, our, from the people who brought you Blackwater, the issues in the Seychelles brought us witnesses. I think that the further circumstances and evidence called into question their testimony. Uh, I think it's probably in the dozens of people that we would have liked to have called that never were called and uh, innumerable subpoenas that we were not allowed to issue. So uh, our job is to put together this plan, uh, coordinate with, if, if possible, the special counsel, the other committees that have jurisdictions over similar issues like oversight and judiciary and, and some others, and uh, to move forward expeditiously. So let's just talk about Michael Cohen for a moment. Uh, before this indictment, that you know that was certainly uh, the news of the day uh, yesterday, um, and you know he claims that you know he was intimidated by Trump and he's concerned about Trump's calls to investigate his father-in-law and in one in one instance his wife. What is what was your reaction to that? Well, obviously, if true, it's extraordinarily disturbing uh, some of the uh, some of the things that we may not have heard about but we can't let uh, such an important witness be impaired because of this uh what we've seen it's removed sometimes more directly in recent weeks is uh, i guess you'd call it witness tampering um harassment by tweets by innuendo uh, by statements that people are making. Um, it, when uh, Another example toward that end was uh, uh, today's person to spotlight, Roger Stone, some weeks ago said he would never testify against the president. He said it again today. And the president tweeted out, it's finally, it's great to have somebody who's strong who won't. You know, he, he's sending messages there to other prospective witnesses of how he will see them in, in good light if they don't cooperate. So 
uh, obviously this is something that uh, I believe Congress is going to have to take up as well. I'd like to ask uh, another question from our listeners. Uh, what was your take on the BuzzFeed article and then the ensuing response from Mueller's office that there were inaccuracies? Um, I, I, I believe we're probably into the uh, high triple digits of stories that are pretty significant. Uh, I can think of a handful that have uh, been questioned later. Uh, and this is the first that the Mueller team seems to have rebutted. Um, I don't know all the circumstances, so I can't say whether or not the article is accurate. They seem to be standing by it. Uh, it's interesting that uh, they say that the source was not uh, Mr. Cohen. So uh, obviously there's some possibilities there that still need to be looked at. If Michael Cohen comes before the committee, um, uh, will you be seeking information about other potential criminal activity uh, that he either committed or or may know about, given that he was not completely forthcoming with federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York? Well, a lot of great questions for Mr. Cohen. Uh, (laughs) If you weren't in Prague, why are we hearing the possibilities of your cell phone pinging off? Uh, cell towers there. Were you near Prague? Were you, were you being cute or clever in your answer? Uh, or, you know, partially evasive with somebody else? Are you aware of anyone else that was communicating? And what was the sum and substance of this? As you know, an interview uh, brings out other information and people that you want to talk to. So I think he'd be a wealth of information toward that. And he's also perhaps the best person in this whole circus to tie the president's financial, personal, political uh, world all together. And I think there'll be a lot of great questions dealing with how money flowed uh, through the Trump organization, personally, uh, politically, and in the Trump financial world, Uh, connections with the possibility of money laundering and so forth. So uh, obviously... A lot of issues for him, and we look forward to uh, the possibility of his testimony. So this Roger Stone indictment, one of the um, one of the responses from some of his allies and Trump's allies have been, well, these are just process crimes. Uh, these aren't, you know, this wasn't a conspiracy and so forth. And, you know, we've seen behavior by by the president and you mentioned part of it you know encouraging telling you know saying that Trump, that stone had guts by not cooperating and so forth um you know it seems like the the, the obstruction of justice is being uh, treated as a commonplace occurrence and i'm curious as somebody who is a lawyer yourself for many years how how do you how do you react to that first my reaction is um There's a reason you come up with a a first round of indictments that then have superseding. Um, Second is if you look at the body of the special counsel's work and his language and how he's processing this uh, this entire investigation, it is a pattern of behavior uh, of conspiracy uh, and conspiracy to obstruct. Uh, The fact that he doesn't hit you over the head with it right away. isn't as disturbing as I think some people find it. So uh, I think that we're going to find out 
that not only is this the most important investigation of our lifetime, but it's probably the best, if not at least one of the very best. And so uh, let let it follow its path. And uh, I, I don't read too much into what's not there. When I read this, uh, today's indictment and others and all the other language that's attached to the legal documents by this special counsel and other districts, it, it shows to me a pattern of behavior by the Trump world of um, obstruction and conspiracy. But uh, I'm not going to uh, jump to any conclusions beyond that. Who's going to be the ultimate target? Let the process take its uh, its path. How would you respond to uh, folks who believe that investigating these matters and focusing on these matters uh, is all is harmful to the Democrats politically? That really Democrats should spend their time focusing on issues like health care and and bread and butter issues, uh, and not really uh, fo- you know spend the time to focusing on these investigations. Yeah, we can do more, more than one thing at a time. I'm uh, on two committees. Um, I'm on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, and I am a chairman on the Appropriations Committee, one of 12. And I have uh, there's a lot of hours in the day and a lot of important work to do. My job is to, among other things, service uh, my constituents with critical issues they care about, and to draw resources back to my district, my state, and the region to help, but also to pass appropriation bills that address health care appropriately, the justice system, uh, education, uh, our national security. So uh, just because you're hearing about one thing doesn't mean the others aren't taking place. Uh, We just passed any number of bills to try to end this government shutdown, and I was the floor manager on a couple of those. we can do it. It, it. it seems like Congress gets nothing done, but there's a lot of talented, hardworking people who are doing their best to move this agenda forward. And once this shutdown is past us, hopefully very, very soon, uh, the public will see just that, that there's a lot of talented new people here uh, who are rip-roaring, ready to go, mm-hmm. and they're going to see extraordinary legislation on all those issues. One last question for you, Congressman Quigley. A lot of our listeners are very concerned about the Russian efforts to subvert our electoral systems in the United States. Um, and, you know, I, I know that you have brought attention to the uh, Russian intrusions into our electoral systems in Illinois uh, and had a, a bill in, co- in the last Congress uh, that did not pass to to uh, for additional funding to protect our systems from cyber attack. Can you tell us about that and what you think uh, will you'll be doing on that front in the new Congress? Well, I was the sponsor of the House measure that did fund $380 million. I don't know. I got $12 million of that for election security, which means training, software, and new equipment. Uh, the last time our electoral process was put in question was probably what, Bush Gore uh, with hanging chads to bring back bad memories. We spent $3.5 billion to protect the process. So I recognize that $380 million was a mere down payment. Tried to pass it again, as you uh, said, this, co- this last Congress. That failed on partisan lines. Uh, my Republicans voting against it for some unexplainable reason. Uh, as the chairman of the, that committee that funds that, it will be back. 
because there are uh, Illinois was the first state hacked by the Board of Elections, hacked by the Russians. Uh, DNI Coates has said that the lights are still flashing red. The threat is still there. We're going to get money for new equipment, new training, because uh, over 40 of our states have equipment that's so old that it can't even handle modern anti-hacking software. Around 13 states don't even have a paper trail. So that if you were to try to audit it after a hack, you wouldn't even know that you've been hacked. So we're going to get this done. Uh, it's going to get funded in, uh, on the House side, and I believe we'll get support on the Senate side. Well, that's great news. Yeah, it's good to hear. Thank you so much for joining us, Congressman Quigley. I really appreciate it. Uh, I just tell folks, keep the faith. Uh, we're going to get this done. Thank you, sir. Sure. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. So let's bring in Barb McQuaid. As I mentioned before, she was the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and she is also an MSNBC legal analyst. We're fortunate to catch her before she boards the plane to be on the Rachel Maddow show tonight. Well, welcome to welcome to the podcast, Barb. Oh, thanks, Renato. Honored to be on your podcast. So I I have to ask you, you you saw this indictment today, probably as surprised as I was uh, to to see it drop this morning. What was your initial reaction? I guess, um, you know, both um, not surprised because I think there's been an expectation that Roger Stone would be indicted for a long time, especially since Jerome Corsi went public with the plea offer that was made to him some months ago. Um, But also... Uh, it's significant. Uh, there's some very serious allegations in there, um, some very um, uh, deliberate and intentional lies before Congress. So a serious case. I think it's a significant moment in the Mueller investigation. So uh, one of the things that has been getting a lot of attention uh, is, is really the factual se- section of this indictment, because this was an indictment for five counts of making a false statement to Congress, one count of obstruction of justice, one count of witness tampering. But the factual section contains some some language that has gotten a lot of attention. The one that I've you know have already been asked a lot about today um, is there's a line. I think it's in, it maybe paragraph 12 uh, in which um, a senior Trump campaign official was directed by someone, but it says as was directed kind of in passive voice um, to get in touch with Stone about his connections, uh, his contacts with WikiLeaks. What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I know that you recognize this and others, so it's not an original thought, but I think that Robert Mueller chooses his words very carefully. I think that he identifies other people like person one and Roger Stone by name or by description and the omission of who it was who directed Stone to engage in that activity or, or the Trump campaign official is deliberate. And you have to ask why. Who would be in a position to direct a senior Trump campaign official that we cannot name or maybe that we cannot indict? And so I think one possible and even likely conclusion is that that may refer to President Trump himself. Yeah, it seemed to me that the implication I would draw is it could it either could be referring to Trump himself or to someone who would have to be identified in a way that might narrow down who it is. For example, let's say it was a Trump family member who wasn't technically part of the campaign, but is a relative of the candidate. 
um, was, you know, was, you know, was obviously that person was relevant and there are implications that could be drawn from that. Um, that was my take, but either- yeah, that's a very, that's actually a very good point, Renato, that I hadn't thought of that, um, you know, sometimes you describe people in such a way that everybody knows who it is you're talking about. And sometimes you don't care and you, you realize that's going to happen. But if there's somebody whose identity they want to protect at the moment, uh, you may be right that maybe that may be why they chose the passive voice. That might be another alternative. One question that I was asked by journalists this morning that stumped me, Barb. So I'm going to ask you that this is this is the <laughs> wonderful thing about having uh, a smart person like you on my podcast. I can ask you the questions that I don't know. Um, is the, one question I was asked is why the Trump campaign was identified because in other you know obviously as you know the Justice Department policy is to not identify individuals and entities uh, and entities that are not charged. And in other contexts, they have uh, anonymized the candidate in the campaign, even though it was uh, obvious who they were referring to. Yeah, that's a very good point. And as, as we said, you know, there were times when uh, I'm sure you dealt with this and I dealt with this as a, as a former prosecutor where you would identify somebody as company one or person A or something like that. And you would all know that everybody knows who it is. and It would be sort of laughable. But to comply with Justice Department policy you would go ahead and do that. I don't know. Um, you know, I suppose if you're describing a campaign, everyone knows that Robert Mueller is investigating President Trump's campaign. There are only two possible campaigns here. I guess he doesn't want anyone to have any confusion that he's talking about the Clinton campaign. And maybe it was just so obvious that um, it was important to do that. I also think that in an indictment like this, you're, um, you know, preparing this document for uh, use at trial to apprise the defendant of what he's charged with and all those other traditional purposes of pleading. But I also think that this is a speaking indictment, and to some extent it uh, alerts the public about what's going on, and there's great public interest in this case. And so I suppose uh, even if ordinarily you would change it to campaign A in this instance, he thought that that would not serve uh, an appropriate purpose. So one one, I think, big question here is – what you know first of all what do you make of the search warrant on Roger Stone's residence in other words um you know the the charges in this indictment are for lying to the house intelligence committee and other obstructive acts that I mentioned earlier regarding the house intelligence committee and to get that search warrant they would have to go to a judge uh, present evidence that present uh, uh, you know evidence in the form of an you know an affidavit to that judge um, detailing that there would be evidence um, that that there's good reason to believe that there was there's evidence of a crime in his residence. Do you think that the search warrant suggests that they're investigating something else, or do you think that they uh, were able to make a case to a, to a federal judge that there was evidence of this obstructive activity in Roger Stone's uh, residence? Yeah, it's hard to say without having access to the um, the search warrant itself. Uh, obviously, they already had pretty solid evidence uh, to support this indictment. That doesn't mean they're precluded from looking for more if they have probable cause to believe that there's some located in his home. But I think it's important when you think about these false statement types of charges. You know, sometimes people dismiss them as, quote, mere process crimes. There are a number of reasons why uh, I think mere process crimes are serious crimes. Uh, one is it's on the books and it's a crime, but it also is always the case that a person knew that it was illegal to lie, and yet they chose to lie anyway. 
And that usually tells prosecutors that the truth is something worse, that there is some secret that they are trying to lie about, that they are concerned about sharing with the world. And so it strikes me as likely that in addition to looking for any evidence in support of these false statements and witness tampering allegations, they're likely also looking for other things. Now, they would have to be able to demonstrate probable cause. But, uh, you know, for example, we saw in the Internet Research Agency indictment and the other uh, Russian hacking indictment, this charge of conspiracy to defraud the United States by interfering with the fair administration of elections. I think that that's arguably a charge that you could add Roger Stone to if you had enough evidence connecting it. And, you know, here we've got some connections with him now to WikiLeaks. Why not charge that additional crime? And it may be that they don't feel that they have sufficient evidence uh, to to charge it. They may be looking for additional evidence or other things that they can find once they're in the door connecting him and the campaign to Russia. There are some allegations about connections to Russia in this, but um, I don't know why they've held back in not charging it. And it may be strategic in that they're going to try to flip him, or it may be that they don't believe that they have sufficient evidence at the moment. Yeah, I mean, to me, I would think, Barb, that this means that at least right now they don't feel like they have enough evidence, because if I wanted to flip Stone, I would charge him with as much as possible um, or you know, if I wasn't going to do that, it would be because I would make a presentation to the guy and say, here you go, here's everything, usually in the form of a complaint or speaking indictment where it's all laid out. Speaking indictment, just so everyone knows the term we're using, is just a term where all of the details or a lot of the relevant details are laid forward in the indictment. And it just seems, it seems to me that you know, it's much easier to prove that somebody lied as to very very narrow details than it is to prove that they had an an agreement to commit a crime with, you know, whoever from WikiLeaks or Russia or so forth. Uh, I think one thing that I am concerned about, uh, Barb, is that there's so much speculation about proof of a conspiracy that when Robert Mueller proves more um, narrow crimes, which often are what I think you and I used to do when we were both prosecutors, that people are going to feel let down in some way when actually this is a very significant development. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. Um, uh, You know, prosecutors don't need to hit home runs. They just need to hit singles. And so frequently that's what they charge. But, you know, for people sitting back and waiting for the home run, I guess they might find an indictment like this disappointing. But I I don't know. I find it to be really quite explosive when he, um, you know, he asks uh, one of the witnesses to um, uh, lie in such colorful language. You know, he makes the reference to the character in The Godfather. Um, uh, I forget the the character's name, but he uh, says, "Why don't you pull a uh, character's name, Frank Pentangeli, character from Pentangeli. The Godfather, who lies to Congress? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah who says." I, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember nothing. I don't know nothing. Um, why did you do that? That's such a blatant lie. You know, this isn't a, gee, I forgot a detail. Uh, you're playing word games. I was tricked. I had a faulty memory. These were really deliberate. And then, you know, when it becomes clear that people are going to cooperate, he says, you know, you're a rat and, uh, I'm going to kill your dog and some really awful things. Um, and so I, I think that this is actually a pretty shocking indictment and but for maybe some expectations of a conspiracy with Russia, uh, I think the allegations in this indictment are really alarming. 
Yeah, I have to say the line about taking your dog uh, is the is the is that line in that email. I think would be the email that, assuming Roger Stone eventually is convicted and sentenced, I think a judge would take that very seriously. You know, Randy Credico is a more fragile person than Roger Stone. You know, he was the man who brought his dog in with him to the grand jury, a comfort dog. Um, you know, I think a judge would take very seriously the fact that there may have been real harm to Mr. Credico. I, I would imagine that, you know, he would be testifying, whether it be a trial or it's sentencing in some fashion, or at least prosecutors would be describing uh, how this impacted him. Uh, and, you know, this isn't something where, okay, well, I told a lie and I'm sorry I told a lie, which is, let's say, what we've seen, you know, from, Rod, you know, from uh, Michael Flynn or George Papadopoulos or so on. You know, here's, here's a real harm to somebody. Uh, and it's, it, it is a scary thing. And, and I think it's the sort of thing I will tell you would have a massive impact on a jury. Uh, I, I remember when I was a federal prosecutor, one of my um, colleagues was, had a hit put out on her by a defendant. And the fact that the, that the, def- that the defendant had previously uh, threatened to kill the dog of his defense attorney to send a message um, was al- almost as damning as, as trying to kill my colleagues, sad to say, to the eyes <laughs> of the jury. Wow. Well, and it looks like the allegation here is both. He talks about taking that dog, and then um, further in that paragraph, it says that Stone wrote to person two, who I believe is uh, is Credico. I'm so ready. Let's get get it on. Prepare to die. Expletive. So I don't know if that was a reference to the dog or to him, but uh, it's um, clearly threatening behavior. And so I think you know that's again this idea that this was word games or a faulty memory is uh, completely blown out of the water with those allegations. Do you think, I'm, I'm curious, so I spent time this morning, so, you know, I had my coffee and I was sitting there reading this thing and trying to calculate the guideline range uh, this morning for Roger Stone because a lot of the early questions from uh, folks on my Twitter feed were, uh, you know, about the length of the potential sentence. And it seemed to me, Barb, that, a lot of his sentence turns a lot on whether or not a judge finds that there was a threat of physical harm to Randy Credico. If there was, he gets an enhancement. He could be up to a guideline range of 41 to 51 months. If, if he didn't, you know, he might be in the 15 to 21 month range. It'd be very significant. I'm curious how you think a judge might react, might, might, uh, might uh, find uh, as to that issue at sentencing. Yeah. You know, obviously this is something that the, the parties would litigate uh, whether this factor should be applied. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, language, especially when you're dealing in text messages, is susceptible to lots of different interpretations. Um, but in this instance, I think the language is something like threatened to cause physical injury to a person. So threatening the dog probably does not qualify, but I think that other part about the I'm so ready, let's get it on, prepare to die expletive, I think if that expletive is just a follow word, then um, I think that you meet that definition, and I think that enhancement would apply. So I think there's a very strong case for arguing that it should apply. I think I, I think I might want to know what the expletive is <laughs> to ensure that he's talking about uh, person two and not about the dog. But so long as he is talking about the person, I think prepare to die absolutely meets the definition of a threat to cause physical injury. Yeah, I, I think I think you're. I think that's right, Barb. I, I think that's certainly going to be the argument that prosecutors make. And, and I just so everyone understands, a lot of times listeners ask me, well, well how could that not be? How, how would there even how would this even be litigated to use the term that, that you use, Barb? Where in other words, 
having the lawyers fight about it in court. On the defense side, what the defense would end up saying is, well, look, Roger Stone's a person who uses all sorts of salty language. He swears all the time. He uses a lot of hyperbole. Uh, when he tells somebody to, you know, to uh, eat, eat crap, he's not telling them to literally go to, the, go to the toilet and pull something and put it in their mouth. He uses a lot of, uh, you know, innuendo, innuendo in language that is, that is not necessarily literal. No, but that's exactly, I think, the sort of argument that a defense attorney would make, Patty. I think that they wow. would say, you may say, you know, to, to eat crap and die or, you know, or anything like that doesn't mean he actually wants him to die. Now, here, unfortunately, for Stone, it's more direct than that. But that's the sort of way that a, a defense attorney would work that issue. Uh, do, you, do you agree, Barb? I do. You know, threats are much harder to prove than I think most people think. Uh, so often we would see threats made to groups on social media and there'd be an expectation that we would prosecute those and we would find them legally insufficient because uh, the law requires that there be something known as a true threat and it has to be a specific intent to injure a specific person. But I think you could probably make a pretty strong argument that that standard is satisfied here because we know it's directed against Randy Credico and it is it prepared to die. Although, again, I want to know what expletive is. <laughs> Where it says expletive. Um, to make sure he is directing it at Randy Credico and not his dog. But I think if it is directed at him, um, you could probably satisfy that legal standard. But I agree with you that I think it's not um, an obvious slam dunk, that there probably would be some argument um, about that issue. Yeah, what would make the difference here, what would be helpful to prosecutors, is that at sentencing you only have to prove things by 51%. It's more likely than not. Whereas at in a trial, you have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. So I talk a lot about the different uh, standards of, of proof, and I think that's important here. So a lot of, you know, that also I think helps us understand why prosecutors charge such such narrow lies. In other words, you know, were you in communication over email or not, you know, uh, with certain individuals? And that's because they, they, the prosecutors would have to prove a knowing and willful false statement. And the way the way that they would do that is by showing that these are such obvious things that, of course, Stone knew that they uh, were false. Is that is that your read as well, Barb? It is. And the other thing that makes this um, very favorable to a prosecutor is the fact that it's in writing. You know, these weren't phone calls where you have to rely on the good memory, of course, your credit code to say he told me prepare to die. And you have to sort of question their credibility or their memory. He actually wrote them in an email, and so that makes the proof much easier. Uh, when you know you, you might still have to explore his intent, but you know exactly what the words were verbatim. There's no way for uh, the words on the page to be shading the truth or to lack credibility or to have a faulty memory. And so, putting these in texts and emails was a real gift to the prosecutors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one implication that I think is interesting here is so we have. Um, as you mentioned, Roger Stone is using the term rat. We know the president of the United States has also used that term and praised Stone for having, quote, guts uh, to not flip and not cooperate. It's, the implication I draw from that is that Trump himself, not not just Stone, but Trump himself has something to hide. Is that the implication you draw, too? <clears throat> Yeah, you know, I guess I want to be careful of um, uh, speculating too much, but I think that is um, anytime you have a lie that, you know, you really have to try to peel that back and wonder what is it that they were trying to hide. You know, if if this really was just um, heart political hardball, then why not admit to it when Congress calls for you to testify about what happened? 
why lie about it, knowing that there's some serious risk here, that those emails are out there, that it's a crime to lie to Congress. Why do that unless you think that telling the truth would get other people or yourself into far more trouble um, than just answering the questions and so, uh, or the lying? And so I, I do think that there's more here. Um, it may be that Robert Mueller already knows what that is, or it may be that he's trying to explore what that is, and that's why he's searching the home of Roger Stone, um, likely using Corsi and Credico as cooperators, and may seek to use Stone as a cooperator. He certainly now has leverage that he could use to try to flip Roger Stone. He was in touch with at least one senior Trump campaign official. You know, what else did they talk about? What was their goal? What was their strategy? And what other conversations might they have had um, in furtherance of those? So I, I think there is more there. But um, I think we should be cautious to avoid speculating as to exactly what that might mean. Well, it's hard for uh, for many people to to keep themselves from speculating. And they do have questions about the, the tweets from the president today in regards to, to Stone. And, of course, they want to know if it's possible he's dangling a pardon. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Of course, it comes up a lot, I know. Yeah, you know, that's such uh, an interesting thing that uh, uh, the, the, the pardon offer, you know, his power to pardon these people really is absolute. But um, I, I have to believe that if you were offering a pardon in exchange for someone to uh, refuse to cooperate uh, or even to lie, then that would be an abuse of executive power. Um, and so um, I don't know. But, you know, with Twitter, it is easy to just put something out there. It's very open and notorious. And I think that that almost makes it seem less criminal uh, when it's not done secretly. You know, if you were to pass a note to Roger Stone with the same things that are appearing in his tweets, I think we would view them very differently. But I question whether we should just because he does it in an open and notorious way. I don't know that it makes it any different. Right. I mean, maybe that's just building in um, a defense there. But I think it's one more piece in the obstruction puzzle, but I don't know that standing alone anybody would charge the contents of one of those tweets uh, as, as it is with the, you know, an obstruction of justice or the like. Yeah, I have to say, Barb, Trump says so many things over tweet <laughs> and publicly that I find just they're straight up corrupt. I mean, to me, the the <laughs> example that that jumps out at me is when Trump attacked uh, his then attorney general, Jeff Sessions, for failing to quash the indictments of two Republican congressmen who uh, were indicted for wrongdoing, for committing serious crimes. And that was uh, maybe a, a four hour story before everyone that moved on. And it didn't seem to bother a yeah. lot of people. I mean, it's interesting to me. I feel like we've we've normalized obstruction of justice by senior officials, including the president. Yeah, I, I agree with you that that was one of the most egregious things I've seen in all of this, the idea that President Trump was berating uh, Jeff Sessions and then also uh, reportedly Matt Whitaker uh, relating to some of the disclosures involving Michael Cohen, the uh, charges and the plea agreement and, and, and the like. Um, those are the kinds of things that I think in a different administration would have people uh, aghast. And I think that there's just so much uh, in this administration that has us aghast that we're losing our appetite uh, to be shocked. But I think it's important to recognize just how unusual and outrageous really it is for a president to be directing and berating his attorney general in this way. And, you know, you raise a really interesting point, Renato, in um, in your Twitter feed. You did a really helpful thread, I think, 
what, like 28 or something uh, segments to uh, to the thread that I thought was really interesting. I have frequently kind of diminished the my regard for congressional hearings that they really just get in the way of what uh, Robert Mueller is investigating, and they should just get out of it because they are risking compromising witnesses and you know tipping off targets by having these hearings. And they should just—they're not a particularly effective forum because it's you know political actors asking questions in artificial ten-minute increments, and they should just get out of out of the business. But you make the really interesting point that um, this is a really complementary use of a congressional hearing and prosecution. Um, by, uh, you know, but for these congressional hearings, there would not be today's uh, prosecution. It required um, Roger Stone and others to lock into a story by having them called before Congress. And that is a way that's very helpful. And you've pointed out that you've done that before with, you know, say, SEC hearings and other complementary uh, official proceedings. Yeah, in fact, I um, did that all the time. So I was, uh, you know, primarily a white collar prosecutor and I prosecuted very complex financial crimes. And, you know, if you're investigating, uh, you know, for example, a CEO of a company, uh, usually the best strategy was to wait and see what the SEC does, have the SEC, uh, you know, issue its subpoenas and have that that uh, individual testify uh, because it's, it's a crime for them to lie to the SEC. It's a crime for them to lie under oath. Uh, and then they're locked into a story. And I will tell you, I had one high profile trial where uh, the defendant's testimony before the CFTC, which is the, basically the futures version of the SEC regulating the futures market, was uh, was dramatically read at the trial and really locked him into a story, made it very hard when he did take the stand uh, b- because he had a deal. He had to stick to that story. And when he didn't, I cross examined him on that basis. So, yeah. I mean, that's I think that, that this is really helpful. The other thing I think that I didn't talk about in that thread bar, but I talked about a few minutes ago with with Congressman Quigley is part of the value I see with the uh, congressional investigations is that. The public, it's a way for the public and their representatives to find out facts that may never become public because they're obtained via grand jury subpoena or, or other reasons. Well, you're right about that. And especially in this uh, particular investigation where we have an attorney general right now, an acting attorney general in Matt Whitaker, and then, you know, a, a nominee in William Barr who has uh, said he will not abide by recusal advice um, necessarily of Department of Justice officials who, um, you know, I don't know whether they will agree to make public any final report by Robert Mueller. And so Congress, I think, is providing an important public service by having open hearings so that the public can learn about this. And of course, you know, in this scenario where when it relates to a president who I think will not be indicted, um, an impeachment is the only uh, remedy available if there was some significant crime committed here, well, then, you know, Congress needs to get to the bottom of it. And so by utilizing some of these hearings, they may expose avenues for uh, potential impeachment proceedings. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that that's going to be important here. You know, the reality of the situation is that because of how the special counsel regulations are written, it's not clear to me whether the report that Mueller writes will be necessarily in the form that could be released to the public and the way you know, the, the regulations read as the attorney general is going to make something public. Uh, it could be that, you know, he incorporates uh, the Mueller report or, you know, or or something like that. But uh, 
you know, we don't know, and we certainly, I, I don't have complete confidence personally, I say this on my, just on my own behalf, of acting a, a Attorney General Whitaker or Attorney General nominee Barr on, on that subject. Um, and, you know, it may be if, the, you know, certainly the House of Representatives is, you know, a lot of folks uh, like Congressman Quigley are alarmed by this. And, and as you point out, Barb, their votes are ultimately what's going to matter here. Yeah, you know, President Ford, I think, was the one who says that high crimes and misdemeanors are whatever Congress says they are. <laughs> and to some extent, that's true. I mean, I think there is a little bit more structure around it than that. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, it requires the House and the Senate to agree on that. And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, depending on what, you know, where the truth leads, that at some point people will choose country over party if we see that, you know, a, a president did conspire with a hostile foreign adversary to attack our democracy. So, Barb, I know you I know you only have limited time because you're you're heading out to New York to the studio. I, I'm curious what you can you expect to, for us to be seeing in the weeks to come and what, what should our listeners be looking out for? Yeah, I think um, there will be an effort to flip uh, Roger Stone. Now, he is someone who is, you know, been pretty famously stubborn about where he stands on things. But we saw the same thing with Michael Cohen until uh, he was charged uh, or threatened to be charged. So I think there will be some effort to flip him. And if he knows um, some important things, I think we'll see um, additional charges come from that. I think that there also could be charges against some individuals within the Trump campaign. You may recall that in the sentencing memo uh, in the Michael Cohen case, the government said words to the effect that um, he was particularly helpful in providing valuable information relating to his circulation of his testimony, among others, relating to the Moscow project. Um, There's only a limited number of people who testified about that. I think uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner. And so I, I think there's some possibility that those two could also find themselves facing criminal charges if Robert Mueller is able to put together evidence that they also lied to Congress. So um, that's a possibility. And of course, in the bigger picture, it does seem like they're looking very hard to satisfy themselves, whether there is or is not evidence that this group was conspiring with Russia to defraud the United States by interfering with the fair administration of elections. And so that to me would be sort of the ultimate charge would be high level campaign officials being either added to or charged in a different indictment with with that sort of a charge. Just a quick question to all that. People have questions about Steve Bannon, you know, because he's in Europe, would they, uh, you know, seek to extradite him if they needed to question him? Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, You know, he is a U.S. citizen, so I would think that we could get him back depending on where he is at the time. Um, If he were to be charged um, I don't know if you can extradite somebody on the basis of being a material witness. I know you can charge someone uh, or extradite someone if they have been charged with a crime. Uh, but just to bring him back to question him, I don't know. Do you know the answer to that, Renato? Yeah, I, I, I don't believe he can be. Uh, and that's, uh, uh-huh. that's an interesting, that'll be an interesting uh, problem. I will say that you know Bannon's role in this because, and I I discussed you know I've discussed that all, uh, in that Twitter thread. Bannon's role in this is interesting because he's that so it appears that he's that high-ranking uh, administration official that is discussed later on, and he you know rather infamously stonewalled the House Intelligence Committee himself. Um, so yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I suppose stonewalling is better than lying, but uh, I can imagine how they what might want to bring him back for additional questioning. Yeah, there's no question about that. I, I, I think that the House Intelligence Committee has not had uh, has not had their, their last entanglement or interaction with Steve Bannon. But I will say, and this is good, good you know, good, good advice for everyone. Uh, if you are in trouble with the feds or if Congress is looking at something you did, you better get an attorney and it's better to say less rather than more. I've been blocked by Jerome Corsi, so I can't see what that guy's saying, but he's, he talks a mile a minute. Who knows whether he'll get charged. Uh, and, and, uh, Roger Stone is, you know, he was already, he was still posting on Instagram today claiming he's framed and so on. Wow. Yeah. Well, hey, Barb, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a real honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Safe travels. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, Renato. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 